Happy Pride Month. Welcome to the Legal LGBTQ Plus Podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use any and all pronouns, and I am the new executive director of the LGBTQ Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is my first time recording the podcast, so I'm thankful to be joined by one of our frequent guests and the founder of our Bar Association. This is the Law Notes episode of the podcast, and we're lucky as always to be joined by Professor Art Leonard, Chief Editor and Writer of Legal's LGBTQ Plus Law Notes. Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments both in the U.S. and abroad affecting LGBTQ plus people. We're going to be talking about a broad range of cases today, primarily affecting the transgender and non-binary communities. While there have been a number of exciting and hard-fought victories this past year in New York, we would be remiss if we didn't take this moment to check in against the escalating legal and legislative attacks, particularly around TG and CND youth, LGBTQ plus parents, and gender-affirming healthcare. It's a pleasure to be here and to get our series of monthly podcasts started with you, Shane. The first, we're actually going to discuss two cases that are uh, substantively related, although there are different kinds of courts and the litigation stance is somewhat different. Uh, There are cases from Texas and from Alabama, two states that have legislated or by administrative fiat tried to prevent uh, parents and healthcare providers from from providing gender-affirming care to minors. And even the the definition of minor is a dispute between the two cases. Uh, But uh, in any event, we'll start with Texas, which we've already talked about because of an earlier uh, part of this case. Uh, What happened was uh, legislators in Texas proposed a bill that would make it illegal to provide gender-affirming care to minors in that state. And uh, their device for doing that would have been to designate such care as child abuse. But the legislative measure failed. But that didn't uh, give any pause to Attorney General Ken Paxton or Governor Greg Abbott uh, in purportedly in response to a letter from one of the legislative supporters of the bill that had gone down the attorney general issued an opinion in February stating that uh, any provision of gender affirming care to minors was child abuse under the existing child abuse statute, even though it had never previously been interpreted to apply to this situation. Uh, after he issued his opinion, Governor Abbott issued a directive in the form of a letter to the commissioner of the Department of Family and Protective Services which is supposed to investigate incidents of child abuse and take action to try to ameliorate the situation, usually by getting a court order of some sort or prosecuting whoever is abusing the child. So the governor basically ordered the commissioner, uh, Jamie Martin, who is the commissioner of the, uh, Jamie Masters, excuse me, who is the commissioner of DFPS to start investigating (laughs) Uh, And DFPS responded by issuing a brief statement saying, in accordance with Governor Abbott's directive today to Commissioner Masters, we will follow Texas law as explained in Attorney General opinion uh, KP0401, which means it's Ken Paxton's 401st opinion. He's been Attorney General for a while. Uh, So they immediately suspended one of their own employees at the department who was the mother of a transgender child who had been receiving gender-affirming care. Uh, So they started investigating, they suspended her, Uh, they started investigating her and her husband and the situation and presumably the healthcare provider involved. Uh, And uh, attorneys uh, quickly ran into court, Lambda Legal, I believe, played a leading role on this. Uh, They went into court seeking a TRO right off the bat, a temporary restraining order right off the bat, and a, uh, a what they call in Texas a temporary injunction. In other jurisdictions, it's frequently called a preliminary injunction, an injunction before a trial to say, stop doing this investigation. And in addition, uh, the plaintiffs asked, not only tell them to stop doing this investigation, but to stop doing any investigations that are based solely on uh, a report received by uh, the department that uh, someone is providing gender affirming care to a minor. Uh, so the, uh, the trial judge in Austin, Texas gave them the TRO and a week later gave them a temporary injunction. 
and gave them everything they asked for in the temporary injunction. Basically, they said, don't investigate anybody while this case is pending, because the judge concluded it was likely to, uh, to find that the uh, actions were invalid, that, uh, first of all, there is a State Administrative Procedure Act, and uh, the commissioner can't just announce a new policy like this without going through the steps necessary and the fact finding and, uh, and investigation and everything of the situation. And furthermore, there are constitutional issues here of due process, uh, which the, uh, the court believed the plaintiffs were likely to prevail on and that uh, interfering with the provision of uh, gender affirming care that's ongoing for minors would cause them irreparable injury. Uh, so the court issued the temporary injunction, the state immediately filed an appeal in the Court of Appeals. When the state files an appeal of an injunction issued against it, that appeal supersedes the injunction and gives the issue to the Court of Appeals as a matter of first impression for them. Uh, and the Court of Appeals decided under the rules the, of appellate procedure, uh, they were entitled to affirm the entire injunction. This time, the governor filed a, uh, a writ of mandate in the Texas Supreme Court. And as I point out in, uh, in my Law Notes account of this litigation in the current issue of Law Notes, which is about to come out, the June issue, under Texas law, uh, there are particular rules with respect to what the Court of Appeals can do in the way of issuing injunctive relief, because it's not a trial court. Uh, in this case, they just affirmed the trial court's injunction. But the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that under the rules because the temporary injunction went beyond the parties to the case and it afforded relief to all parents and transgender people in the state of Texas and healthcare providers. It basically froze any enforcement of the DFDS policy. And they said, you can't do that because the rules say that when there's an interlocutory appeal, that is uh, appeal of just a ruling on a motion, not uh, a final ruling uh, at trial, that the Court of Appeals is limited to providing temporary relief to the parties to the case. And they said the only parties to the case are these, this particular couple and their child and this particular doctor who joined them as a plaintiff individually. Uh, so they said, we've got to narrow that injunction send it back to the Court of Appeals and cut down the injunction just to protect that family. All right, so what about the department? And they said the department has always had authority to investigate uh, suspicion of the child abuses taking, taking, a law, taking place, that the governor and the attorney general, they can state their opinion about what the law means, but their opinion isn't binding on anybody else. The only opinion about what the law means that's binding on anybody is a court opinion, they said. Uh, it's within the discretion of the department to uh, undertake investigations, but if they wanna take any action against somebody, they have to go to court. Ultimately, court has to decide. So they said the governor has no authority to direct the department to investigate anybody. And this is another point uh, about Texas law. The governor of Texas is in many respects a figurehead who has very limited executive authority. In fact, it's sometimes said the Lieutenant Governor has more authority than the governor. And the same is true of the legislative leaders. Uh, the governor is basically a spokesperson for the state and can propose legislation and things like that, but doesn't really directly supervise the operation of the executive branch departments. So they said uh, the, uh, the trial court's decision to issue a temporary injunction against the governor is hereby vacated because the governor doesn't have any authority to make this order. Uh, and neither does the attorney general have authority to order anything. His opinion is just his opinion. It doesn't have any special weight. Uh, and therefore, the department is left in the situation uh, that uh, prevailed before the governor ever issued anything or the, uh, the attorney general issued anything. It's up to them to decide whom to investigate and then to decide whether to go to court. Uh, so that means the department, the, the ball was tossed back to the department. It's basically up to you to decide whether to investigate anybody. And the department, uh, presumably responding to uh, the politics of the state, 
decided to continue investigating other people. They weren't allowed to continue investigating the plaintiffs, but they were free to investigate anyone else. So they went out and they uh, started investigations of others. And a second lawsuit was filed. And this second lawsuit, uh, which is not reported in the June issue of Law Notes because it started in June, the second uh, lawsuit is brought by PFLAG, Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, on behalf of all of its members who may be affected by this issue, as well as three couples who are parents of transgender children who are concerned uh, because they have been subjected to investigation. And, and they're worried they might be prosecuted and their, uh, their transgender children may have their treatment interrupted as a result. Uh, so they have uh, obtained a temporary uh, injunction at this point. Uh, and the question is whether the state is going to uh, appeal that and what, what the Court of Appeals will do. That we don't know at the time that we're recording this podcast, which is in the middle of June. So that's the situation in Texas. But the important thing in terms of what happened in May, because the uh, Supreme Court's decision came out late in May, uh, was that the uh, governor and the attorney general could say anything they want, but it's up to the department to decide whom to investigate. And uh, the uh, decision by the Court of Appeals to affirm basically the trial court's injunction against the investigation of the plaintiffs in that case is now looked to by the judge in the second case who says uh, they haven't come up with anything new and I agree with the first judge. And there's also the politics of this in Texas that we have elected judges and the judges elected in Austin are Democrats. Austin is a bastion of liberal political opinion in the middle of a conservative state. So the local judges, are uh, are conservative are, are liberals democrats and then the court of appeals is elected and the court of appeals with jurisdiction over cases coming out of austin also has a lot of democratic members but when you get to the state supreme court they're all republicans either elected or appointed by the governor and the governor has been a republican since the 1990s when ann richards finally went down to defeat after two terms and george w bush was elected governor then then, then it was rick perry and now it's Greg Abbott. So they have been appointing uh, Republicans and Republicans have been getting elected. In Texas, the governor appoints them as a vacancy and then they have to stand for re-election at a subsequent uh, ballot. So that's the situation in Texas. Well, thank you for bringing us up to speed on the procedural history in Texas. This is a very complicated series of actions that have taken place. I wish we could say that this is a bar exam hypothetical and not real life, but here we are. So again, thank you for clarifying everything that's happened thus far and kind of folding in some of the intricacies specific to Texas. I know there's a lot of confusion and misinformation online about what gender affirming healthcare for minors really means. So I was wondering if you wanted to take a minute to clarify clarify that for some of our listeners who might not be as familiar with the issues. Right. Gender affirming health care for minors uh, consists of psychological counseling, consists of uh, assisting them in deciding how to present themselves in everyday life, how to dress. Uh, it uh, can include uh, seeking a name change, a legal name change, or just a de facto name change until they get older. And there's litigation around the country about whether parents of transgender people can get a name change for their child. And in in Indiana, there are conflicting decisions from the Court of Appeals about this. Uh, And then, of course, there is the possibility, as uh, the beginning of puberty sets in, of providing medication, which is commonly referred to as puberty blockers, uh, to prevent the individual from developing further the secondary sex characteristics. Gender affirming care is assisting the individual through these various things as a minor in uh, living as the gender with which they identify. Uh, Surgery is not involved at this point. Uh, Under the standards of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, which is usually referred to by its acronym WPATH, they have published uh, consensus guidelines uh, based on on the views of uh, healthcare uh, specialists who who are in this field. Uh, it's it's a, an organization that makes these guidelines by a consensus process, looking at uh, scientific evidence. 
And they say that you shouldn't do surgical alteration of someone until they're an adult. And what that consists of, it, it varies from state to state what the age of majority is. But basically the idea is that uh, the uh, medications that block the development of secondary sex characteristics during puberty do not result in permanent change. That can be reversed. You can get puberty started again through uh, using uh, hormone injections, things of that sort. Uh, but when you surgically do something, that is permanent. I mean, you can you can try to change some things to afterwards, but it's very complicated. And so the theory is surgery should await until the individual is an adult and is really, really certain that this is what they want. Uh, and uh, another aspect of it, and, and it's an issue that's heavily contested in these cases, uh, how, how readily will a healthcare specialist in this area diagnose someone as having gender dysphoria, the technical term for feeling your gender is different from the gender uh, that you were designated at birth and actually finding that it is really, really a problem for you to continue being identified with the gender uh, that you were designated at birth because that's not who you are. You, that is not that that contradicts your understanding of who you are, and it causes great discomfort, psychological discomfort. Uh, it may, in some cases, cause people to feel suicidal that they can't uh, have a cure. So uh, this is what the big uh, hullabaloo is about. Texas wants to say that until someone is an adult, they can't transition in any sense, uh, and anyone who helps them do it is violating the law because Texas considers it child abuse. Uh, and they have led the way for other states to start considering this. And one of them was Alabama. And Alabama went pretty far, pretty quickly. Uh, they passed a law earlier this year in, in 2022, uh, which was signed into law by Governor Ivey. Let's see, I've got the date here. On April 8th of this year, it's called the Alabama Vulnerable Child Compassion and Protection Act. And uh, it does various things. One of them is it makes it a felony for healthcare providers to provide puberty blockers or hormones as gender affirming care for minors diagnosed with gender dysphoria. So they can be prosecuted for a felony. The healthcare providers. Uh, it doesn't. That provision doesn't run against the parents, but it also uh, prohibits surgical alteration of minors as a firm form of gender affirming care. And their definition of a minor is someone under the age of nineteen. Uh, it also makes it illegal for school officials to encourage or coerce a minor to withhold from their parent or guardian the information about their gender identity beliefs or to withhold that information from the parents of a minor. Basically, uh, they're saying the school should tell the parents what's going on with their child. Even the if school the parent, should out the child. Yeah, out the child, even if the child doesn't want them to. And no puberty blockers uh, and, and no surgery. Basically, if, if someone is a minor and uh, believes and strongly identifies as a member of the sex other than what they were designated at birth, they uh, have very limited resources in Alabama. I mean, they can get counseling. Uh, presumably the state says nothing about how they dress. Uh, they're probably not gonna be able to get a, a legal name change on their birth certificate or a, or a new birth certificate. Uh, I doubt that Alabama goes for that. Although that's not mentioned in this opinion. Uh, that the rules on that this vary from state to state, uh, and uh, there is no direct federal law on it. Although there is an argument that some of what the states are doing may be considered to be preempted by various aspects of federal law, but uh, we're not there yet in terms of uh, opinions, uh, court opinions finding preemption. Uh, so in this case, in fact, uh, a, a lawsuit was brought. Uh, challenging this law. And uh, 
actually more than one lawsuit. This is this is complicated. In, in our account in law notes, we point out two separate lawsuits were filed in two separate federal district courts. Uh, in this case, the plaintiffs and the plaintiffs include uh, public interest organizations uh, like Lambda Legal, for example. They they ran into federal court uh, claiming that federal constitutional rights are being violated here, and uh, the case sort of kicked around. I mean, when there were there were two cases on file, they attacked the same law, they raised many of the same theories. There was the idea that they should be consolidated in one district court. They went back and forth between two different districts. Uh, the uh, the plaintiffs were very eager to get before a particular federal district judge who has issued great decisions involving transgender prisoners. And they figured uh, this judge didn't have to be educated on trans 101. You know, you didn't you weren't starting from ground zero. Also, this federal judge was not appointed by Trump, who appointed a lot of federal district judges in Alabama. But to the bad luck of the plaintiffs, the ultimate case got assigned to a Trump appointed judge. Uh, and uh, this judge, uh, Lyle C. Burke, who was appointed uh, among Trump's early appointees, appointed in 2018, uh, he uh, issued an opinion on May 13th, and he agreed to issue a, a preliminary injunction against the enforcement of the provision concerned with puberty blockers. Very interesting that, uh, that a Trump appointed judge would come to this conclusion, but he was persuaded by the, uh, the amicus brief uh, from uh, the American Medical Association uh, representing a lot of uh, professional organizations. And, and he said, it's, it seems pretty clear to me that the state's argument that it had the authority to intervene based on the idea that puberty blockers and gender affirming hormone treatment was experimental and dangerous was just not correct. That uh, and the state brings in an expert, quote unquote, and the state's expert says, oh, this is very dangerous stuff and everything. But the expert's an outlier. And uh, in this case, uh, the judge says uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has long recognized a fundamental right of parents to make decisions about their children, including their medical care. If the parents want to uh, hire a, a doctor to provide a puberty blocker to their transgender child, that's up to them. That's not up to the state to intervene, at least at this point, at least until we get to the merits on this case, ultimately, because this is just a preliminary injunction. Uh, so mainly uh, he was analyzing the constitutional issues under the due process clause, in this case of the 14th Amendment. Uh, and he also found there was no evidence that anybody was forcing gender affirming treatment on minors. That in fact, there's a lengthy diagnostic process to be absolutely sure before we introduce any foreign substance into somebody's body. Uh, you've got to be very sure that this is appropriate and medically necessary. And he said that should be up to the parents and the doctor. He also recognized an equal protection claim by transgender children because those who were already receiving treatment, their doctor could be subject to felony prosecution for continuing the treatment. And he said that violates their equal protection rights, not just their due process rights. And points out that in the 11th Circuit, uh, the 11th Circuit has recognized that discrimination based on gender identity or transgender status is subject to heightened scrutiny. Uh, the 11th Circuit was the first circuit, in fact, to recognize that in, in a case involving a transgender uh, public employee who uh, was discharged for transitioning. Uh, however, the judge said, by the same token, I think parents are entitled to know about this. And so I am not going to issue a preliminary injunction against the parent notification stuff and the disclosure stuff. I mean, the... the uh, the uh, plaintiff said, well, well, you know, children may be in danger if they're added to their parents about this. Uh, and the of court course. said, well, in a specific case, you know, it may be that uh, the school will decide that it will be too dangerous to the child. But that, that, that's not uh, that's all hypothetical here. This is just this is just a facial challenge to, uh, to the statute in this case. And uh, there's no direct evidence on that. And refused to uh, join the ban on surgery 
pointing out that in fact, under the WPATH standards, you don't do surgery on minors. So he said, uh, there's no indication that, uh, that that is gonna be interfering with anything that people have a right to do. So they weren't gonna, it wasn't gonna give preliminary injunction on that either. But this case will now have to go to, uh, to discovery and trial. And uh, eventually there'll be summary judgment motions or there'll even be a trial. But at this point, uh, there is at least a, uh, a bar on prosecuting healthcare providers who are providing puberty blockers to uh, transgender youth. So uh, that's uh, a good outcome in part in that case. And, our, and both of these opinions from the Texas Supreme Court and from the Alabama District Court came out on May 13th. So uh, my headline is transgender luck on Friday the 13th, because it would happen to be a Friday. Two courts partially enjoined state efforts to interfere with provision of gender affirming care for transgender minors. So that's where we are on that. Now, there are some other states that are thinking of legislating in this area. There'll be more litigation. Uh, eventually, I expect this issue might get up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Scary that even with the partial victory, I'm sure these decisions will still have a chilling effect on youth accessing the care they need and providers feeling safe to, to engage in that necessary health care. That's a problem in Texas in particular, because they, among other things, they impose a reporting uh, obligation on doctors in Texas uh, under, under the uh, uh, Department of, of Family and Protective Services uh, following of... Uh, of Attorney General Paxton's opinion, uh, under the child abuse statutes, a doctor who discovers that a child is being subjected to abuse is required to report to the state. So this would be like telling the doctors who are providing gender-affirming care that they have to let the department know. I mean, how else do they find out to... Uh, to uh... So we'll see. I think the, the, the PFLAG injunction, if that stands up, uh, that at least uh, may give more pause. Uh, it, it would also mean that PFLAG should get out there and uh, make sure that all the parents of transgender uh, minors in that state should sign up as PFLAG members in order to be covered by the preliminary injunction. That reminds me that there are a number of states, not New York, but there are a number of states where attorneys are mandatory reporters for child abuse as well. So this is something that many members of the legal profession might get pulled into whether they consider this part of their fight or not, depending on the state that they're practicing in. True. I, uh, many different issues uh, boiling around this. And this is something obviously we're going to, we'll be monitoring closely. And if there are any developments in Texas, the, the trial court in Austin had originally set a trial date for mid-July uh, on the uh, uh, permanent injunction. And uh, I that may be delayed because of all this litigation that went up to the Texas Supreme Court, but maybe it'll go ahead. So we may have more to report. The state, of course, is appealing the grant of the preliminary injunction. Uh, and uh, they're appealing to the 11th Circuit. And they've asked the 11th Circuit to expedite the appeal. And the court has agreed. They set a short briefing deadline, and it is likely to be argued in the fall. So we'll see what happens there. Mm. The 11th Circuit is sharply divided between Democratic and Republican appointed judges. Uh, so it's, it's hard to predict what might happen in the 11th Circuit. Well, thank you for keeping us up to date. I know we could spend the entire hour on these two cases alone, but we do have other cases to dive in on. Our second legal issue. Uh, this is also a transgender issue. Uh, but it involves uh, transgender students and how they are to be addressed in class by their teachers. And this case, uh, we've, we've seen this issue before at the, at the college level, the high school level. Uh, this involves a middle school teacher uh, in school district 574 in Gary County, Kansas. Uh, and uh, the teacher uh, is uh, named Pamela Ricard. She has religious objections to, uh, to calling students by names and pronouns other than those uh, identified at birth based on their genetics, their biology. What, uh, what opponents of transgender rights frequently refer to as biological sex. Uh, 
which is sort of ignorant because there is a lot of mounting evidence that gender identity has a physical basis as much as any other human characteristic. I mean, we are physical beings and every aspect of our character, our personality has some basis in our, in our physical existence. So just because uh, someone was identified uh, as one or another gender at birth uh, doesn't mean that their ultimate conclusion that that gender label is incorrect does not have some physical component to it. It's not just psychological as the opponents of transgender rights argue. Uh, but in this case, uh, the school district had actually adopted a formal policy which they communicated to faculty. You are to call children by their preferred names and their preferred pronouns. This is a Kansas school district. Uh, you know, Kansas is pretty, that's a pretty red state, you know, but this school district, and, and presumably they were uh, reacting to uh, what the Biden administration was telling them. And, uh, and, you know, the Biden administration has interpreted Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 as following the Bostock decision, protecting transgender students from discrimination based on their gender identity. And uh, actually during the Obama administration, uh, the Department of Education issued guidelines under Title IX about how to treat transgender children. And those guidelines included use the name that the child prefers, use the pronouns that the child prefers. Uh, that was uh, withdrawn by the Trump administration, which uh, said they, they did not believe the Bostock decision applied to Title IX. That's been their position on it. Uh, but the Biden administration believes it does. And uh, I'll be talking a bit, a bit later about the litigation about that. But in this case, the school district had issued the policy and Ms. Ricard just, uh, she didn't want to comply with it. And she had transgender kids in her math classes. She's a math teacher. And uh, she actually was suspended for a while under the policy when some students complained. Uh, so she filed suit. She claims this is a violation of her free exercise of religion rights. Uh, she's represented in this case by Alliance Defending Freedom, the anti-gay religious public interest law firm that is always looking for ways uh, to attack what they consider woke policies regarding gender identity. Uh, so she, she claims it violates her freedom of speech because she's being dictated to by the school as to what she has to call people and what word she has to use. Now, I would call that public employee speech and say under Supreme Court uh, rulings, public employee speech is the prerogative of the employer to dictate when it's part of their job and certainly calling on students in class is part of their job and uh, talking to students and the language you use, that's part of your job. But uh, the courts are in disagreement about this. Some courts say that it's individual speech uh, on a subject of public concern and interest. Some say, no, it's employee speech. It's, it's the speech of the school district and the school district has a right to set the policy. Uh, so uh, there's that dispute uh, in this case. And uh, the school also had a policy that said, in essence, teachers are not to out transgender students to their parents on their own initiative when they're communicating with parents that a transgender student uh, is, uh, when the teacher is talking to parents, is supposed to use the, the student's legal name and the pronouns consistent with their gender as identified as birth when speaking to the parents, unless the student has authorized through the administration and through uh, the counseling department of the school has specifically requested that uh, in dealing with their parents, they use their preferred names and pronouns. So if the student asks for it, but otherwise the teacher is not to out the student and the district has defended that policy in this case by saying, we think it's up to the student to decide whether their parents should know. I see what you're saying. So it yeah. sounds like as a measure of safety planning, right. the name that the teacher calls the student in class might differ from the name that's showing right. up on the homework in the backpack that's seen by the parents at night. Right. And, and that's, you know, this, this teacher, Ms. Ricard, is very, very, very uh, disturbed by this. She says her religious beliefs not only say that God creates us male and female, and that's immutable, and you can't change it, et cetera, et cetera. She also says uh, that uh, her religion says dishonesty and lying is bad. 
and that uh, in dealing with the parents, she should be telling them what's going on with their kids. Uh, so she goes into court. She wants injunctive relief here. And this, once again, is a preliminary injunctive relief case. Uh, and uh, what the court did was they issued an injunction against disciplining her because she came to a compromise with the school. She said, I will use the name they prefer, but I won't use the pronouns, but I won't use any pronouns. I will not use any pronouns in speaking to transgender students. And the school said, well, okay, then technically you're in compliance with our policy. If you don't use any pronouns, if you just call on them by name and refer to them by name, as long as you're referring to them by their preferred name, she said, well, I'll do that. And so the school said, well, then we won't, uh, we won't uh, suspend you or discipline you if that's what you do. And she said, well, what if I slip up and you know, I make a mistake? And they said, well, we'll only discipline you for intentional violations of the policy, not for unintended violations of the policy. And on that basis, the court said, uh, we're not gonna issue an injunction against the school enforcing that policy. Uh, as to the, the communication policy, the court said, well, you know, under Supreme Court, well-established Supreme Court policy, uh, parents have a right to know what's going on with their, with their uh, children. And we don't think that the, the court does not think that the uh, school has a compelling interest uh, not to out the students to their parents because the parents have a right to know. Uh, the judge, federal district judge here, uh, I should mention is Holly Lou Teeter, the U.S. District Court in Kansas, who was appointed by guess who, Donald J. Trump. You know, I've I've tried whenever whenever we're doing federal cases, I try to indicate which uh, president appointed the judges because what we have now is a federal judiciary, which is heavy with Trump appointees, and Biden has been moving fast, faster than any other new Democratic president to fill every vacancy he possibly can. Uh, so there's a growing core of Biden appointees. There were a lot of judges appointed during his first term by Barack Obama. But during his second term, when Republicans got control of the Senate, there was a big roadblock and they didn't confirm any people. Uh, so Trump actually appointed more district judges in his one four-year term than Obama appointed in his two-term eight years uh, since they lost uh, the Senate. So I try to indicate that, uh, but it, it's interesting. The Trump judges uh, are not monolithic and are somewhat, sometimes unpredictable. Uh, for example, this judge was willing to recognize that the school has a right to uh, tell teachers what they can call students. And the only reason that uh, Judge Teeter didn't issue injunctive relief was because of this compromise. And furthermore, uh, that the injunction is very limited because uh, the plaintiff, Ms. Ricard, indicated that she's not returning to the school at the end of the spring semester. So the injunction only ran to the end of school in May. Mm. Uh, but, uh, and, and as a result of that, I think it's unlikely to be appealed and maybe the, the lawsuit will be withdrawn because if she's no longer a teacher in the district, she doesn't have standing unless she has a damage claim of some sort. So who knows what's gonna happen here? Uh, but uh, she is represented, as I mentioned, by uh, attorneys associated with Alliance Defending Freedom. And of course, the school board is representing itself. It so sounds like go? another variation on the ongoing debate in terms of how far, quote unquote, parental rights should go in policing the activities of right. transgender and non-binary youth at school. Right. Lots of issues here. Uh, what can schools require in the way of teachers and what, uh, what do parents have a right to know? What, uh, to what degree does a student have a right of privacy as against their parents when they're still a minor? Which is uh, a problematic question, you know? Uh, and there are safety issues there as well, as, as you pointed out. Uh, outing to uh, parents who are not gonna be supportive could be a problem. But the court said uh, that uh, the district has not articulated in this case, either abstractly or in the case of the students in Ms. Ricard's math classes, that uh, disclosure to a parent would lead to child abuse, neglect, or some other illegal conduct by the parents. 
So if they presented that evidence, it might strike the court differently. So we'll see what happens in a subsequent case. So our third case is a birth certificate case. And, and we know birth certificates are a, a big issue. Uh, and in fact, in transgender law, it's been a big issue going back as far as the 1960s when there were the first attempts by uh, transgender people to get new birth certificates issued, showing their new name. And uh, at first there was the issue of getting a new legal name and then uh, showing a new name and uh, showing uh, the gender with which they identify because birth certificates indicate a gender. And it's only in, in very recent years, for example, that some states have begun to allow an X on the birth certificate uh, of someone who has uh, concluded that they are non-binary. And, you know, the, the State Department was actually, uh, was a latecomer to this as well. It wasn't until the Biden administration that the State Department will issue a passport with an X. Uh, and we've just had the first few issued. Uh, they had to revise the software because the passports are produced through a computer program. The program had to be rewritten to allow for more than two genders, two gender designation. Uh, but in this case, New York State legislated last year to really simplify the process for transgender people who want to get a new birth certificate. Uh, it used to be, uh, at first they would say no for many years. Then they evolved to the point of saying, well, you can document that you have undergone a complete transition and you've got medical testimony to offer and all this sort of stuff and surgery and all that. Then maybe we will give you a new birth certificate showing your new gender. Uh, but they decided uh, that this is a big issue for transgender people because all of that is expensive stuff. Not everyone can afford it. Not everyone has insurance coverage for it. And there are sometimes uh, medical reasons why some. Uh, and ultimately, the state legislature was persuaded that people can decide for themselves. It's part of their autonomy, part of their liberty interest, protected by the Constitution, although the courts haven't all recognized this yet. But the state legislature decided that if someone has decided, they've made the decision that uh, they don't identify with the gender indicated on their birth certificate, they can do an affidavit. They can do a statement under oath. They can submit it. And a court will order a new birth certificate for them. And uh, the only problem with this uh, that is faced in the case that we're going to talk about today, uh, which uh, is called Matter of Mary, Mary in quotes, because Mary is a pseudonym uh, to protect uh, the plaintiff's privacy in this case. Mary lives way up in Northeastern New York. She was born in Vermont. She was labeled male at birth with a male name, and she wants a new birth certificate. She lives in New York. She goes to uh, state Supreme Court in Plattsburgh, and she, uh, she has declared that she is a woman and she wants a birth certificate that reflects that and that shows her new name. And the court says, well, I can give you a name change. I can do that. You're a resident of New York. I have the authority to give you a name change. Uh, and I can even declare that for as far as New York is concerned, you're a woman legally. What I can't do, even though the state legislature purports to authorize me to do it, I can't order the state of Vermont to issue you a new birth certificate with a female uh, gender indicator because Vermont has its own procedures on this. You know, they issued your birth certificate. I do not have jurisdiction or authority to order Vermont to set aside their procedures, which require medical evidence of transition. Uh, furthermore, in Vermont, you can't just go directly to a court for this. You have to apply to an administrative agency and you have to present your evidence to them, and then they make a recommendation uh, to issue a new birth certificate. And if you don't like their denial of your application, you can appeal it to the superior court. Completely different process than we have in New York. Uh, so the judge said, I think as, as a matter of my jurisdiction, uh, that to the extent that the state legislature in the law they passed last year purports to give me the authority to issue any kind of order for someone whose birth certificate is from a different state, that's unconstitutional as far as I'm concerned. Under the full faith and credit clause, I have to respect Vermont's statutory procedures on this. And I don't have the jurisdiction to do this. So uh, the judge turned her down. Uh, 
and basically said, if you want a new birth certificate, you got to go to Vermont and you've got to do what Vermont requires. Now, by a neat coincidence of legislative timing, Vermont has revised their laws and effective July 1st of this year, you can just do a declaration under oath. You don't need the medical evidence. So uh, she's just got to wait a few more weeks. And uh, of course, she's, she's got to apply in Vermont. And uh, you just do a little Googling and you discover there are organizations in Vermont that are happy to provide assistance in uh, escorting somebody through the procedure. Uh, now, in this case, she was not represented by counsel. She just applied. She was pro se in the New York case, uh, didn't want to have to hire a lawyer. And, it, and you shouldn't have to. This is a simple procedure. It just doesn't require a trial or something under the new law. You just present an affidavit. You can go into uh, any bank and get, a, get an affidavit notarized. And there's probably a standard form you can use at this point. Uh, so important for people to know, because a lot of people in New York were born elsewhere. Uh, and this is, of course, just one state Supreme Court justice. But I think he's probably correct on the law here. Uh, I don't think a New York court has authority to order uh, a, an administrative agency or a, a court or a government official in another state to take a particular action with respect to a birth certificate issued by that state. I think if that went, went up to an, an appellate court, I don't think she'd be successful. So I know most of us have the privilege of the birth certificate kind of sitting in the file cabinet and not really having a lot of significance in our day-to-day lives. So I don't want to downplay how important it is to have a correct birth certificate. I just want to clarify, it sounds like where the disconnect came from with the court here was not creating an order to state the correct sex designation, but rather trying to force an administrative agency from another state to take a particular action because of that. That's how the judge interpreted it, what he was what he was being asked to do. And he said, I just I don't feel I have jurisdiction to do that. Uh, because uh, you know, how do I have a jurisdiction over an agency in another state? It would be different if, if it's a contract dispute between a New York resident and a resident of another state, and I could issue a, a, an opinion in a contract case. Uh, but uh, to get that opinion enforced, you'd have to take it to a court in that state. So my goodness, our discussion has really flown by, um, but I do want to take the opportunity to ask if there's anything else of note that we still have a few minutes to discuss. There certainly is. Uh, and this is this is a follow up on something we discussed last month. Uh, we reported in the last issue of Law Notes on Nice versus Becerra, which was uh, an action brought by the America First Legal Foundation, a bunch of former Trump administration officials who are challenging Biden administration actions, changing Trump administration policies. And so they were uh, suing uh, to get a court order that uh, the Biden administration uh, violated the Administrative Procedure Act by uh, saying that Title IX uh, and Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act forbid discrimination based on gender identity. Uh, and the judge in that case, Matthew J. Kazmarek, a, uh, a, an extremely anti-LGBTQ person uh, who was appointed by President Trump, uh, they, did, they did forum shopping. They filed this in the Northern District of Texas in the Amarillo Courthouse, where Kazmarek is the only judge. <laughs> and he's only there a few days a week. Uh, so they filed before him and he refused to dismiss the case. Well, there's a follow-up, there's another case. Uh, and this case was brought by the state of Texas. Uh, the state of Texas is challenging the Biden administration's position uh, on how Title VII should be interpreted with respect to gender identity after Bostock. Uh, and they're also, of course, challenging the Title IX and the challenging uh, the sec uh, Section 1557 they're challenging under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act and Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act. They're basically taking the position that just because the law forbids sex discrimination doesn't mean it necessarily forbids gender identity discrimination, despite Bostock. And the, the hobby horse they're riding here is a statement by Justice Gorsuch in his opinion for the court that all the court was deciding in that case was whether you can file a discrimination claim under Title VII 
for discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. And we're not deciding anything else. We're not deciding who gets to use which restroom. We're not deciding who gets to use which locker room. We're not deciding about pronouns and names and any of those other disputed issues. We're just deciding in the three cases that were consolidated in Bostock were all employment discharge cases. That's all we're deciding, that these people could file to challenge their discharges under Title VII. So now uh, the state of Texas is arguing that the guidance that the EEOC put out about the impact of Bostock on interpreting Title VII and all the other sex discrimination statutes that the EEOC has anything to do with enforcing are invalid. And they're before Judge Kaczmarek because this is forum shopping. They went to that court in Amarillo and they filed this complaint. And of course, there's a motion to dismiss and he denies the motion to dismiss. Uh, and the Biden administration actually even uh, filed uh, a claim in this case that uh, the lawsuit was preempted by federal law and he didn't go for that either. So, uh, this case is going on. The other case is going on. Both are before Judge Kaczmarek. Uh, he's in the Fifth Circuit, which is a circuit that is pretty hostile to transgender rights as well. So uh, I think eventually this litigation may get up to the Supreme Court. So it's of note that there are now two cases, both pending before the same transphobic judge. Uh, and uh, when he was uh, up for confirmation, LGBTQ groups opposed him, uh, among other things, for his statements, public statements, that he felt that transgender people were suffering from a delusion. That's his view of it. Mm. So, uh, you know, the, the Trump appointees will haunt us. These are lifetime appointments. He's relatively young. Most of the district court judges that were appointed were relatively young. Some so young that the ABA said they weren't qualified because they hadn't practiced law. So, so we'll see what happens with these things. We're keeping a close eye on this case. Interestingly, although the opinion came out uh, quite a while ago, it still hasn't shown up on Westlaw Alexis. And I don't know why, I keep checking. <laughs> well, thank you for keeping it on our radar. Okay, so uh, I guess that's it for this month. Well, Professor Leonard, it's been a pleasure as always sitting down to speak with you, particularly during Pride Month. I appreciate that these weren't necessarily the happiest or most uplifting victories to talk about during a month of celebration, but I think it's important to acknowledge the struggles that we continue to face as a community. Okay, so we'll see everybody next month and have a happy Pride. <laughs>